Hello, sympathetic listeners, and welcome to the Sympathetic People podcast, the podcast by sympathetic people for sympathetic people. Today, I'm going to be doing something a little bit differently, which is doing a podcast on my own. Uh, I'm Tim, and usually I do these podcasts with my crazy Russian sidekick, Ivan. Don't worry, fans of the crazy Russian, uh, we haven't had a bust up. We are occasionally going to be doing podcasts, solo podcasts, because we're both very busy with our careers and lives and all this stuff, and sometimes it's, it's quite difficult to tee up a suitable time in which we can both take part. So this is going to be the first solo podcast. I'm going to be talking today about a subject that I think is really important, and if you've listened to other episodes, you might have heard Ivan and, uh, and me discussing this to some extent. The subject is impermanence, transience, the fact of change, flux, nothing lasts forever, all of that kind of fun stuff. So I'm going to begin my discussion of impermanence by making a somewhat controversial claim. And that claim is that music is the art form best suited to the depiction of impermanence. Now, making a claim like that might elicit several responses. What? Who cares? That's because you're a musician, etc. Fair enough. All of those are reasonable criticisms. So I'm going to start by addressing the last of those responses, the one about me being a musician. Then I'm going to move on to the second, and after that I should be well on my way to answering the first. So yes, I'm a musician. Not an amazing musician, but music is a very big part of my life. I've studied music in some depth, and it's therefore inevitable that I'm biased in its favour to at least some degree. But I'm just going to protest a little bit. I also write. I've studied writing. I also draw and I paint a bit. And I'm fortunate enough to be married to an incredibly talented and prolific painter. Thanks to my wife Genevieve, to live in our house is to be on intimate terms with the process of creating visual art. So I do know a little bit about other art forms as well, but so much for my claims to authority. I have none and I make no claims to any. The only thing I know is that I know nothing. Blah, blah, blah. Thank you, Socrates. That music, of all the arts, most effectively depicts impermanence is just a thing I think. Oh, and by the way, I'm not going to edit out all my little stutters and what have you. This is just me talking to myself initially, and hopefully talking to some listeners. So if there are some little mistakes, some little infelicities, I'm sure you're going to forgive me for that. Anyway, back to the subject at hand. I just happen to think that music, of all arts, most effectively depicts impermanence. You can challenge that claim if you want. There are reasons that I think this particular thing, though, so I'm ready to defend them. All right? Let's go. Who cares? That's the second question. Why should anyone care? 
It seems like a pretty esoteric claim, after all. And what do I mean by impermanence anyway? Well, I'm so glad I asked me that very important question. Impermanence, it seems to me, is a characteristic of all existent things. So you might argue, therefore, along with the philosopher Alfred North Whitehead, that there really are no things as such, that all apparent things are in fact processes. Anyway, this is what the ancient Greek philosopher Heraclitus, one of Whitehead's ancient precursors, was drawing attention to with his very famous claim that I'm sure you've heard, even if you don't know who Heraclitus is, that one can never step into the same river twice. Why is that? It's because the river is in flux. It's constantly changing. By the time you take your second step, it's changed already. It's not the same river. It doesn't matter if you immediately follow each step with the next or avoid stepping into the river again for days, months or years. The river is never at rest. Moreover, the you that does the stepping is never at rest. Not even for a moment. Just like the river, you are always changing, always in flux. So the importance of understanding the impermanent nature of both ourselves and all components of the environments in which we live is also central to another very important form of ancient philosophy, a school of ancient philosophy, and that's Buddhism. No doubt some scholars of Buddhist thought will take exception to this claim, and I claim no authority as a scholar of Buddhist thought, Um, but personally I consider insight into the impermanence as well as the interdependence of all things to be not only fundamental to Buddhist thought, but also primary goals of Buddhist meditation practices. So consider the four noble truths, which are one of the most fundamental teachings of the Buddha. Number one, life is characterized by suffering or unsatisfactoriness, dukkha. Number two, suffering or unsatisfactoriness is caused by primal confusion. And we're going to get to primal confusion in just a second. Three, there is a cure for primal confusion, which is nice to know. Four, the cure is the Noble Eightfold Path. I'm not going to be getting into the Noble Eightfold Path here. I'm not going to be giving you a cure. I'm going to be focusing on the problem. You can always look up the Noble Eightfold Path, of course, using the uh, magnificent wonder of uh, the modern era, Wikipedia. All right, if you consider the form of this teaching, and it's the first one that Buddha gave after he achieved personal enlightenment, you'll see that it's pretty important to know what primal confusion is. After all... The claim is being made that it's the source of suffering. So it's a pretty big deal. The Buddhist literature is voluminous, and there are diverse interpretations of these fundamental teachings, but the gist seems, at least seems to me, to be that primal confusion is a matter of believing that the world has a different nature from that which it in fact has. Right, so that's pretty obviously confusion, You think the world is one thing when it's actually another thing. And according to the Buddha, it's primal 
not only because it affects everything, but because it's innate. So it's kind of our default worldview to be confused in certain ways. So we're being told that the worldview possessed by humans in general is mistaken at a fundamental level. What mistake are we making? We think that things exist or have the potential to exist independently and permanently. Basically, we think it's possible to isolate things, any things, or processes, of course, if you're whitehead, from their contexts, and we think things, maybe things like immortal souls, can last forever. So we're dead wrong about that. In fact, Buddha claims the nature of existence is that it is interdependent and impermanent. To exist is to exist in a context with other existence. <laughs> existence, other things that exist. And existence is intrinsically ephemeral. I didn't realise that existence and existence were going to sound exactly the same when I said them, but hopefully you understand what I mean. Existence, like entities, one might say, or things if you want, exist in a context with other entities or things, right? And existence is intrinsically ephemeral. It doesn't last forever. If we can truly understand and internalise these facts about the world, we will allegedly, according to the Buddha, according to Buddhism, be freed from suffering, which would be kind of cool. So impermanence is therefore kind of a big deal. A fairly obvious example of just how big a deal it is rears its head when we contemplate our own deaths, which is not something that we, we tend to find much fun. Our existence is impermanent. Yours, mine, everyone's. It's going to end. I take it to be fairly obvious that for most of us that's kind of a bummer. One only has to consider the proliferation of death-denying mythologizing throughout history, from immortal souls living forever incorporeally in analog heaven, to uploaded consciousnesses living forever digitally in digital heaven. And come on, is there really any difference? We only have to consider these ideas to see how important this issue is for humans in general, and not just ancient superstitious humans that believed in immortal souls and things, even for people like, I don't know, Ray Kurzweil and transhumanists and people looking forward to the singularity and all of that. It may be true that we're going to be able to upload our consciousnesses onto computers. I don't know. There are lots of, of things we might discuss about that topic, but we're going to leave that for now. But even if it's true, there's still an element of, of sort of death-denying mythologizing about that idea, uh, I think you'll have to admit. Anyway, accepting the inevitability, consciousness uploading notwithstanding, of your own death, not to mention the death of everyone you love, is pretty difficult. But maybe accepting that all existence is impermanent, that death is essentially the price of admission, can help. And acceptance of death really does help us to live better. At least I've got that on good authority. I'm still pretty terrified of death myself most of the time. The goal of Buddha's teachings is always soteriological. 
That means it's aimed at achieving salvation or liberation, moksha. Not salvation in the afterlife that the Buddha is talking about, but the cessation or at least diminishment of suffering in the here and now. I'm not going to get into discussions of Buddhist conceptions of reincarnation and things, which you know some people might think are an exception to, to what I'm saying. Maybe I'll do that another time. Anyway, it's no coincidence that I'm a fan of philosophers and teachers like Heraclitus and Buddha and their the long tr- tradition of in- interpreting the works of and the works and words of people like that. I'm an evolutionary biologist, and it's absolutely central to evolutionary thinking that all things are interdependent and impermanent. The Buddhists may have got there first, but you know we're, we're trying to corner the market on interdependence and impermanent these days. This is going to be a, a short talk. So I'm not going to go into all the details here of how evolutionary biology and Buddhism are sympathetic in certain ways. But if you want to consider interdependence, very briefly, just think about the concept of an ecosystem. By definition, systems are composed of many elements that interact and work together, if you want. Sometimes... This coalition really does work together, in the literal sense, to achieve some tangible goal, but not always. The parts of an ecosystem don't necessarily cooperate, but they do depend upon each other to achieve stability. In fact, the evolutionary game is all about achieving stability in the face of the constant flux which characterizes everything. Stability can only be achieved through the formation of coalitions. A solitary quark, for example, a fundamental particle, is extremely unstable. So stability can only be achieved through interdependence. Stability is only relative, however. Ecosystems change and eventually disappear. Mountains crumble to the sea. Don't know if I stole that from somewhere. Everything is impermanent, nothing lasts forever, all things must pass, thank you George Harrison. Insert song lyrics ad nauseum. If, as a musician, and yes, I'm getting back to music, I am biased towards music, as an evolutionist, I'm biased towards impermanence. So why is music so good at depicting impermanence? Like, I think I've dealt with the second question of why it's important that music is good, at depicting impermanence, so now the meat and potatoes. Or is it just the meat? I don't know. The crux, the important point, why is music so good at depicting impermanence? Because music is the most obviously ephemeral art form. More than any other art form, music draws our attention to the passage of time. It's not the only art form to do this, of course. Narrative would be another obvious example. Computer games... Anything with a, with a narrative element, as computer games tend to have, of course. Novels, therefore. You, you might think of Proust, of course, uh, as a classic example. Narrative about time. But anyway, it's not the only art form to do this. It's just the most direct, in my opinion. That's because music only exists at the moment of hearing. Alright? Sure, you can write a score for a piece of music... But the score is not the music. It's the map, not the territory. 
The same is true of a recording. The grooves in a vinyl record, the zeros and ones in an MP3, these are not music. They are media through which music may be realised, say by pressing play. When music is existing, the fact of its passing, its being in time, is impossible, at least if you're paying attention, to ignore. Paintings are impermanent too. Gaudi's Sagrada Familia is impermanent too, and hopefully I'm going to see that before one of us expires. See it in person, that is. Go to Barcelona! Anyway. But these works of art do not wear their ephemerality on their sleeves. There's something slightly more permanent about a giant cathedral than there is about a piece of music. To experience this great Gothic structure or a painting, it's not to experience their transience directly. It's there if you think about it, but you're not experiencing it directly as you experience them. In this, music is unparalleled. Conversation is actually quite similar to this. Listening to someone speak is similar to this, we might argue. Let's not go there right now. Let's stick to music, all right? I'm going to commit to this thesis that music is the, uh, the best. At least it's an art form. Is conversation an art form? Yes, I think it probably is. Anyway, let's just ignore all of that for now. Ignore all exceptions to my dominant thesis until afterwards. So music is unparalleled in terms of the experience of its transience that you have whilst experiencing the music, intrinsically. It makes impermanence explicit. In doing that, it draws our attention to the constant flux of the present moment. Perhaps we're able to forget or ignore this aspect of music these days because we're so constantly bombarded by recorded music wherever we go. Music is assaulting our ears from every angle as we move through the world. There was music at the beginning of this podcast. There's going to be music at the end of it. We're often using that music to block out the world with our earphones. Most of the music we hear these days is thus relegated to the status of background noise. Listening is different from just hearing, though. As the 20th century composer Igor Stravinsky remarked, a duck hears also. Right? Ducks hear, but according to Stravinsky, they don't listen. At least they don't listen to music. They might listen to the sound of approaching predators, maybe, and react to those. But they're not really tuned in to music. Well, that's what Stravinsky thought anyway. He may have been a, a bit of a bigot against ducks. Anyway, when you really listen to music, its flux, its temporality is undeniable. You're either with it or you aren't. If your attention wavers, you've missed it. That part is now gone. If you were trying to listen to one of Anton Webern's five pieces for orchestra, you just missed the whole piece. Webern wrote these tiny, tiny little pieces, these little miniature works. He was trying to emulate another great composer, one of his heroes, Gustav Mahler. Now, if you know your late Romantic and early 20th century music, you know that Mahler wrote huge symphonic works. It might go for an hour and a half or more. 
and Mahler's explicit goal was to try and contain the whole of the universe, the whole of reality in a single work of art. Now, Webern was doing something really, really different. A lot of his pieces are miniatures. They're a minute long or even less. But he claims that he was also trying to do what Mahler was trying to do. He was emulating Mahler by trying to fit all of reality into these very, very tiny pieces. I think that's a very interesting idea to just sit with and think about. Anyway, if you tuned out whilst one of these Webern pieces were playing, and they are notoriously difficult in the sense that they're often atonal, they lack a tonal center, they can be quite difficult to listen to for a lot of people. If you tune out, perhaps you heard a few plinks and plonks. There's often um, extended techniques being used, pizzicato, lots of different textures. You might have heard a few plinks and plonks, but if you had been listening, you might have had one of the most profound experiences available to human consciousness. And no, people do ask me, I am not overselling Webern. His music is difficult to understand, but it's very much worth the investment. Right, anyway, what's important about this? Not about Webern, but about music as a depiction of impermanence. Well, music makes explicit something that is fundamental to the human experience. We exist in time, and all our experiences are transitory. To get the most out of experience, to get the most out of life, we must be paying attention. All experiences are like Webern's pieces, both in their potential profundity and in their undeniable transience. Blink and they are gone forever. This is pretty obvious, right? But have you accepted it? Have you started to conquer primal confusion? I'm not sure that I have. Well, maybe I've started, but I certainly haven't conquered it. Not really. I still want the good times to last forever, and I still think the suffering will never end. I often need to be reminded that pleasure and suffering are equally impermanent, and music is one of the best memento mores for the moment. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or on SoundCloud. And head over to sympatheticpeople.com and leave a comment somewhere. Thanks again.